Oh, hey, hey, ho, welcome back, Rabbit Hole Research. I'm your host, Kevin Maurer. I've got a uh, a quick little podcast I'm going to do here today. I'm titling this Insights into the Formation of the Federfester Guild in Prague. And in this podcast, I want to share some recent discoveries about the conditions in Prague and elsewhere that led to the emperor granting imperial privileges to a group of fencers who would become known as the Federfester or Freifester, von der Feder von Greifenfels. Um, I also will share some interesting names that may be related to the original patronage of the guild. And uh, so I have some new ideas or theories from several of these recent discoveries that may help us to understand more about the origins and formation of the Federfester Guild. Uh, with this new information about the origins, uh, we're going to dig deeper into the name Greifenfels, uh, for that is a key to understanding uh, the origins of the Federfester Guild, the Freifester von der Feder von Greifenfels. There are several social factors that influenced the initial formation and privileging of this fencing guild, and I want to share some details about that here. Uh, I will also drill down on the fact that many early Marxbruder in poems seem to have been talking smack about the Federfester's love of the written word, or just their association with printed works. Uh, it's often confused me, and I think now I may have a better understanding of that, maybe a name to put behind that, uh, but also, of course, like everything else, many more questions. We're digging in the rabbit hole here of history. So quick background on the Federfester Guild. These were a group of fencers were given some type of recognition, first in 1570 by a duke in Mecklenburg, then in 1606. Their charters were written and proposed in Prague. Then ultimately the emperor, Rudolf II, was convinced to give them imperial privileges in March of 1607. And they chose St. Vite as their patron saint. Uh, their headquarters was in Prague initially. And I've talked and written about them extensively here. And this podcast is just the latest attempt at furthering our understanding of their formation. I want to share with you some insights into the whys and wherefores about them. It's, it's interesting. And so I hope you all enjoy this. Uh, first, right off the bat, I want to talk about Prague. First, uh, this city of Prague which came to be known as the headquarters of the Guild, It was the capital of the Holy Roman Empire at that time under the rule of Rudolf II. Uh, the city actually dates back to the Paleolithic Age, being settled and built by various tribes to the, uh, through to the early Middle Ages. Christianity and various bishoprics were founded there, uh, giving that city some power and prestige. It, it uh, it was always at the confluence of trade routes also from northern, southern, as well as east and west in Europe. It was it was right in the middle. And um, then during the medieval times, it was under the rule of Bohemia. Uh, this city flourished greatly during the 14th century under the reign of Charles IV, as he wanted to make it the cultural center of Europe. And he, he did that to a large extent. He made it the capital city for the first time of the Holy Roman Empire uh, with places of higher learning, libraries, uh, many, many artists came from there. There was a lot of religious activity there, cathedrals, castles. It, it flourished. Uh, but throughout its history, this city was under the threat of uh, Eastern and Western domination. It was, it was caught in the middle, so to speak. And we see that um, during the 16th and 17th centuries as well. And that's something I'm going to talk about here 
with the original formation of the of the Federfester Guild. I'll talk uh, more in a minute about Emperor Rudolf II, but just to preface this, I want to say that uh, he moved the capital to Prague in 1583, Rudolf II, during his rule, uh, and that was only the second time in history that it became the capital of the Holy Roman Empire, and and it was clearly a cultural center of Europe. Um, He moved it from Vienna to Prague. So, how did this city affect the formation of the fencing guild? Well, recently I discovered some history from 19th century Czech historians who revealed uh, some very fascinating and thought-provoking possibilities, things that I had not read from my researching of the German language history of Prague or the Federfester. I found um, by translating some Czech history and came up with some new and, and interesting details that I'm able to uh, continue searching. Nothing is conclusive yet, but these are some theories I want to present to you. Um, they're pretty strong theories, though, and I think you'll you'll see that here in a second. So let's say Prague at the end of the 16th century into the beginning of the 17th century. It, uh, it's been described by a lot of the 19th century Czech historians as a wild, wild west-like environment. It, that's what it read like to me. Uh, especially with regards to foreign fencers, swordsmen, who had found their way into Prague during that time. Uh, And it's reported that these roving groups of fencers from all over the empire, Spanish, German, Italian, they were holding factual and teaching others there to fence. They were brawling and there was murder and violence on the streets. Uh, So much so that Emperor Rudolf had gallows built at many intersections of some of the worst streets, and he had bailiffs actively hanging these fighters and brawlers. Uh, Yet it it did little to curb the violence, and I think there was a lack of control over the swordsmen. No real order was being maintained. Uh, Yet for centuries, the Messerschmitt Guild in Prague, the Cutler's Guild in Prague, had official control over the teaching, certifying of fencers, to some regard or another, and, and holding of fencing events. They maintained the control, um, and that was uh, the for the manly cultivation of the youth into the war arts. So clearly there was roving badasses um, raising hell there, and it was no longer what had been held for several centuries. Uh, so let's talk about that Messerschmitt Guild of Prague for a minute, just like elsewhere. In the Holy Roman Empire, the Cutler's Guilds, they were very powerful and important. They provided a lot of the bladed weapons and also skilled warriors for various uh, combat and engagements. In Prague, they seem to have been ruled or sponsored, reportedly by a knightly brotherhood, uh, with regards to the fencing and events and teaching and, and, and maintaining control of that. There was over them a knightly brotherhood. I'm still researching to find out who that was and what that was all about. But it's just interesting here in the eastern part of the empire that the Messerschmitt Guild were pretty much responsible for controlling the the fencing and the fechtual. Uh, In 1597, this Messerschmitt Guild would request more autonomy from the Knightly Brotherhood, and uh, the city council eventually gave them uh, more total control of the fencing. 
So maybe this was probably an attempt to curb the violence, to regulate the fencing events and thereby control fighters, but, uh, but apparently it had little effect. Uh, so it's written in the Czech history that these roving bands of rowdy fencers were calling themselves Federfester. Uh, simultaneous to the Freifester von der Feder. So there was something going on there. We're, we're still trying to understand that, but the, they were not, they were written as not members of the official group. And so that, that word Federfester uh, had become, had come to be used throughout the 17th century as a derogatory term for an uncouth, violent, or rowdy fencer. Uh, late 16th century, until the official imperial privileges of the Federfester in 1607, and then the guild with its privileges, they had absolute control over uh, the title Federfester. And this uh, this seems to be supported by research done, uh, I found, from modern-day Czech researcher Andrej Vodička. He published uh, some 31 or 34 select translations of some factual ordinances that were dated 28 July 1597. So that, that seems to uh, coincide with the 1597 request by the Messerschmitt Guild to their knightly brotherhood to say, Hey, we need to be, we need to have more privileges and power here. We can try to control this. And a lot of that uh, supports the things I've found. It's always good when you can have two or three mentions from historians of the same thing. And, uh, but basically, it seems as if Prague was a was in a, a time of socio-religious economic powder keg. It was waiting to blow up. It just it's written that way. I got that feeling from translating the Czech history, and there were many different religious groups practicing there, especially the Protestants who had taken hold there. Uh, they were given various religious freedoms. They had always been given a lot of religious freedoms there, and I think. Uh, they had a geographic advantage over the more German lands, too. Their, their geographic location in the eastern part of the empire um, made it more susceptible to attack by the Turks or the Ottomans. And there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of remnants of Hussites there from the 15th, early 15th century. There was, there was uh, again, this confluence of trade routes and uh, free imperial city it was, it was an interesting place. Um, they were susceptible to attack. Also of interest here is there was a great Jewish quarter um, in that city uh, during the 16th and 17th century. Uh, so, you know, many, many different groups were there, sort of a melting pot. And if you combine that with Rudolph II's lackluster ability to lead which he is, I'm going to get into that in a second. It, it seems he had a bit of a, a, a bit of a leadership problem there, and it truly created a perfect storm. Uh, so let me talk a little bit more about this Jewish history in Prague, and it's very, very fascinating. Uh, the 17th century is considered the golden age of Jewish Prague. The Jewish community of Prague numbered some 15,000 people. That's approximately, that was approximately 30 percent of the entire population it's a very very large uh, ashkenazic community there i think it was considered the second largest ashkenazic community in europe uh, after thessaloniki uh, so in the years 1597 to 1609 uh, prague's chief rabbi was judah lo ben bezalel 
He is considered one of the greatest Jewish scholars in Prague's history. Uh, his tomb at the old Jewish cemetery eventually became a pilgrimage site. Uh, so consider that for a second. Roughly 30% of the entire population of Prague was Jewish. And I, 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 I mention this mainly because um, I think that could serve to explain why we read anti-Semitic diatribe in the very charters, the imperial charters of the Federfester Guild, um, Charter Number Nine, and I've talked about that before. I won't go into that. It's ugly, um, very, very anti-Semitic. So, so clearly there was something going on there uh, with thirty percent of the population. Um, you got to wonder how much of the population were Protestants, how much were Catholics, and and you know this. Uh, we're going to get into a little more history here. It might make some sense too. So. A little bit more now about Rudolf II, very, very interesting Habsburg ruler. And he's a big player in this whole story. Born in 1552 in Vienna, he died in 1612 in Prague, the eldest son of Maximilian II. He was crowned King of Hungary in 1572, King of Bohemia and King of the Romans in 1575, while his father, the Emperor Max II, was still alive. And this this is an interesting parallel here, uh, something that's not always done by the Habsburg emperors. Um, they would not relinquish that title, King of the Romans. They, they had several titles in, in addition to Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, but just as with uh, Maximilian I, he was the son of Emperor Friedrich III, who, was, who gave his son the crown, uh, crowned him King of the Romans, um, while, he was, while Friedrich III was still reigning. Uh, so that gave both these rulers, uh, Max I and, uh, and uh, Rudolf II, during their respective reigns, it gave them the right to grant privileges. And with Maximilian I, he gave privileges to a group of fencers known as the Marksbruder. And then later with Rudolf II, he did this with the Federfester. Uh, possibly it adds to the reason uh, the Federfester were privileged. I don't know. that, that uh, The fact that they could be privileged, that's clear. Um, so like the Marx Bruder, it probably meant a small fortune to these, uh, Federfester to have the rights to teach and certify fencing masters and also to share warfighting skills. And, uh, it was a much needed and loyal group. Rudolf II seemed to have been trying to line his own nest with some military support or somebody there had convinced him that that was necessary, um, given the religious turmoil erupting, uh, not just uh, on the continent, but Scandinavia and, uh, and elsewhere. So Rudolf II is very interesting because he was a huge patron of arts and sciences. Uh, his art collections were some of the most impressive in Europe uh, during his day, and the, he had what's known as the greatest collection of northern mannerist art ever assembled. Uh, the adjective Rudolphine, as in Rudolphine mannerism, is often used in art history to describe the style of the art that he patronized. He had an affinity for scientific instruments, and he commissioned many makers, many famous makers and inventors of these instruments, and he collected them. Uh, he was a devotee of astrology and alchemy, uh, the occult sciences, and to this day Prague has a popular tourist attraction known as Alchemist Alley. It's near the castle there. But overall, his leadership was lacking at a time when it was most needed. 
Um, for one reason or another, the, the Reformation was taking hold in many parts of the empire. I think it's clear war, war was inevitable. And it's not surprising that the Thirty Years' War started in Prague with yet another defenestration. Uh, the first happened in 1419 and led to the start of the Hussite Wars. Then again in 1483, uh, they call that the second defenestration. That helped to establish religious peace, but it, it fortunately it didn't lead to war. And then finally the third defenestration was in 1618, uh, and it kicked off the Thirty Years' War. Um, however, Rudolf had died already by 1612, nine months after he had been stripped of all effective power by his younger brother Matthias, uh, except that he maintained the, the empty title of Holy Roman Empire, Holy Roman Emperor, um, and to which Matthias was elected then five months later. But in May 1618, uh, this event known as the Defenestration of Prague was an angry mob of Bohemian Protestant activists. In defense of their rights, granted to them in a letter of majesty, they threw three Catholic imperial officials out of the window in the Prague Castle, killing them. And thus, the Thirty Years' War began. Boom. Uh, like I said, it was inevitable. I think it was a it was a powder keg waiting to blow. And that's where it kicked off. And that was 30 years of ugliness, if you've ever studied that Thirty Years' War. It was a terrible, terrible destructive time. Many, many, many deaths. Um, but back to the Federfester. Uh, I think really of great interest is the fact that uh, with regards to Rudolf II and his court, several of the original Hauptmänner of the guild were directly employed by Rudolf II. In his court, they had high, high-ranking positions. Georg Stefan von Molde, he was at, uh, at one point the court wagon master. That's a, that's a very powerful title. Had a lot to do with the wagons and transportation and, and a lot of money involved in that. The emperor's very own chamberlain, Hans Pop. As, uh, I've done a lot of research into this man, uh, alternately known as Hans Weiss, but, uh, but his name was Hans Pop. He was a German. Um, he had been a former mercenary, Landsknecht. He was very, very skilled with the sword. Um, fairly corrupt <laughs> in his position. There's several stories I've gathered about him. I might do a podcast just on him. Uh, he's an interesting fellow. Um, rather corrupt in his position there. And uh, he always ended up uh, coming out smelling like a rose. So it, I think it speaks to the influence that he and several of these other leaders of the guild had within the court. Uh, no matter what wrong they did, they came out smelling like a rose. And uh, probably they had some connection to the patron or patrons from Greifenfels. And I mentioned earlier, uh, it's imperative that we understand the house Greifenfels. And uh, again, I've got ongoing research that may eventually show uh, this connection between Hans Pop, uh, Georg, Georg Stefan, Lawrence Springenklee, and several others of the original uh, captains of the Federfester Guild, who were from other parts of the empire. They were lifeguards, Trabanten, to the Elector of Saxony. So it's obvious there was some connection there. Um, now, Greifenfels. Let's let's talk about this. It's interesting, um, and it's important to understanding the Federfester Guild because we see uh, their name as the Freifester von der Feder von Greifenfels, and I've often wondered what that what that meant. So, what is this connection? 
Uh, similar to how the Marksbruder had the support of a patrician house. Uh, with the Marksbruder, it was the House Lovenberg. And that was a rather old and powerful family that were renowned for their products made from tanning hides and furs. It's a little wonder that early Marksbruder were uh, clearly uh, members come from the Kirshners, the Pelt Workers, the Furrier Guild. And there they have Lovenberg, <clears throat> the prestigious family, rich and powerful as their patrons. Uh, these Federfester had patronage from the House Greifenfels, at least in the beginning. And it's tantalizing to think that the Mecklenburg Duke, Dukes, whose symbol was the griffin, is somehow connected here. But so far, I've been unable to connect those dots between Greifenfels, the house of the place of the griffin, and yet the Mecklenburg Dukes, um, their, uh, one of their coats of arms contained the griffin, and it's uh, in the Federfester symbol as well. I'll talk more about that here in a bit. But So for years, I've researched this connection of Greifenfels, knowing that the original name of the guild was Freifester von der Feder von Greifenfels. I discovered years ago that Greifenfels, the physical place, was in the Austrian state of Carinthia in the town of Ebenthal. That's in the southeastern portion of Austria. Uh, the castle was built by Wolfing and Heinrich von Gernitz around the year 1230, 1231. They received the right to build a fortress on the property belonging to a monastery from Victoring. And they got that from Pope, Pope Gregory the Ninth. Uh, in 1315, that castle passed into the possession of the Alfenstein family. And in 1408, it came under the rule of the Lords of Neuhaus. You see that name, Neuhaus von Greifenfels, well into the 17th and 18th century. Um, they, the, Neuhaus, the Lords of Neuhaus, completed Ebenthal Castle below the original Greifenfels Castle. They completed that in 1566. Then they completely abandoned Greifenfels Castle in 1588 in favor of their new residence. Um, the ruins of Greifenfels have been in the possession of the Counts of Gers since 1704. So um, that's just the castle, though. That's not necessarily the name Greifenfels, which we assume emanated from that. And I'm going to get into more of that in a bit. But here's an interesting aside. There's a famous story or poem uh, that I discovered through my research of everything Greifenfels and the and the the Berg ruin is the, the the ruins of the castle. And this poem recounts the haunting of this castle uh, due to a knight in the 13th century going on crusade to the Holy Land. Uh, where he was wounded badly. His only desire was to get back home to Greifenfels where he could die and be laid to rest. He loved it there. He loved the scenery. It, it is, it looked like a very, it looks like a very beautiful uh, part of the world. Uh, so he made his servants and others um, promise to get him back. But he died en route and was buried at sea. Um, and the, the poem is rather sad. Um, and I think there's probably songs as well. It's, it was rather famous in the, in the medieval times. Uh, it said his ghost haunts those grounds there and has been seen for many years. I, I love a good ghost story. Um, so to think that by 1588, that castle of Greifenfels was abandoned. Now, again, that's just talking about the castle, not the name Greifenfels. That name, Greifenfels, has endured to this very day. And uh, here's some very interesting stuff here. A while ago, uh, Chris Van Slambrook, a fellow researcher, kindly shared with me uh, something most interesting. 
Um, Chris digs deep into this stuff as well. And I appreciate his sharing it with, with me and, and we can all share it together. It was from a genealogy page. Chris discovered it showed a coat of arms uh, for a particular person that someone had done research on into their family genealogy. Uh, the coat of arms used on the page is one I've never seen before. And from appearance, it's probably a modern reconstruction, maybe Victorian, maybe even more modern. I don't know. But nonetheless, it's an accurate black and white depiction of the original Federfester coat of arms. Uh, there are actually both Wappen of the Federfester used on this Jenny page. Uh, the first original was the three quadrant and then the later four quadrant Wappen from post 1688. So somebody did their homework there. And um, this Jenny page detailed the history of one Wenceslaw Christian Stransky von Greifenfels. Uh, born around 1545, he died 17 March 1607 in Prague, 10 days after the privileging of the Federfester Guild. He came from an old and noble family of Ritters uh, or Knights, uh, Ritter von Stransky. He died with no heirs, though. Uh, but he had achieved a high level of importance in the chamber court of Rudolf II as a legal scribe, writer, and lawyer. And he's most remembered for his chamber court legal writings, precedents, and, and other legal interpretations. Uh, his works were really used for the next 150 years. A uh, manuscript was preserved by his brother-in-law, and I happened to find a memoir uh, written by that brother-in-law in the Czech language. I, I, I translated it roughly, and it describes uh, this Christian uh, von Stransky von Greifenfels' final hours. I'm going to read just a short excerpt here. It's rather interesting. Tells um, tells about this manuscript. This manuscript, which now numbers 489 leaves, many of the leaves are initially torn, is bound in wooden boards covered with pale yellow decorative goatskin the front of which bears the name of the owner marked with the letters WKSCG, Wenceslav Christian Stransky zum Greibenfels. On the inside of this plate is marked, In the year since the birth of the Son of God, 1607, on Monday, the Memorial Day of St. Gregory, otherwise on the twelfth day of the month of March, the illustrious Mr. Wenceslav Christian of Greibenfels, at that time governor of the manor of Belina, was afflicted with a serious illness. Lying on his deathbed, wishing to bid farewell to this world, he has given me this handwritten book with many legal writings in a pile uh, written by him out of love for his brother-in-law as a memorial, who then on Saturday morning, the 17th day of the same month, between the hours of 11 and 12 o'clock, completed his life and departed from this world. May the Lord God have mercy on his soul. Amen. Thus living, I take leave of this world and commend my soul into the hands of the Lord God. Yerchik Skrilik. Yerchik Skrilik was the name of the brother-in-law. Uh, and there's quite a bit of uh, writing about this Wenceslav Christian von Stransky, um, von Greifenfels. So was this man instrumental in the formation of early patronage? of the Federfester Guild. Did he, did he have a connection to Duke Johann Albrecht of Mecklenburg, who in 1570 gave some recognition to a group of fencers who had become known as the Freifester von der Feder von Greifenfels? 
Um, unfortunately, I've been una- unable to find a connection between the Mecklenburg Duke and this Christian Stransky von Greifenfels. It is possible. Uh, so what I did was I was able to reach out to the Stransky von Greifenfels family. I did a, a real deep search online and found a clever way to email them. Um, they are still, to this day, an aristocratic family. Uh, throughout the history of the 17th to the 20th century, they feature predominant in European politics, medicine, education, and literature. There are, there are many famous Stransky von Greifenfels. Um, and surprisingly, I did, I did in fact hear back from them. Uh, however, I've been, uh, I was welcomed and thanked for the interest and I've been referred to the, to their family genealogist. And my main question is why on that Jenny page was the, were the Federfechter Wappen used for Wenceslav Christian Stransky von Greifenfels coat of arms? There has to be a reason. They know something. And um, I would appreciate it when they share that uh, with us. I think we'll know more. Um, Now, there are several other names of potential patrons with the title von Greifenfels that I'm currently researching, all of who had a connection to Prague uh, during that time frame. So I think it's only a matter of time until an accurate connection is is provable, is discovered. Uh, One thing, though, is for certain, the early Federfechter, they were written about as having an affinity for book printing or writing. It's as if their beginnings had something to do with a scribe or even a book printer. And why was that? It's it's a tantalizing clue I've spoken about here on previous podcasts. I've lectured about it. I've we've had many discussions with folks that are into this. Um, I don't know. I continue to pursue that theory. Uh, and now it's being based on a little bit more evidence. So let's briefly talk about this Duke of Mecklenburg who had some influence on the uh, original recognition of the guild, Johann Albrecht. He was, in fact, in Prague in from January to April. And that's according to his court Hofmeister, Heinrich Husseinus. Uh, it may have been that uh, that it was there that he gave some Kleinod to a group. Uh, this Kleinod really wasn't a privilege. It was more of a recognition, like a small, like a small token of, of his esteem. It gave them some, some ability to hold schools or to be something there. And uh, who knows how or why? Who did he give it to? Why? I, it's, again, we're... We're digging, I'm digging deep on that. It, I, I found some things that may be, initially it may have been in Rostock that privileges were granted to some fencers. I do have some recent discoveries about that connection. I'm not going to mention too much more about that here. I need to suss that out further. I want to get more mention of that than just the one scant claim that, that, that I have. I don't want to stake a claim like that on just one little thing, but it's interesting. Uh, it's, it's obvious that Johann Albrecht was, um, had some advantage for him and his duchy to give patronage to a group of free fencers. Uh, suffice it to say, that's all I'll say about that. Um, and something else I, I wanted to revisit here that I had done years ago, translated a poem, a book work by Christoph Rosner, 1589 Mark Spruder, Master of the Longsword. He gives he gave some very interesting details about the Federfechter, 1589, really uh, early, early, early before they were privileged. Um we know that the earliest mention of the Federfechter was 1574, and um, there was a 1575. I'll talk about that here in a bit. I'm getting ahead of myself. But uh, this 1589, Mark Spruder, Master of the Longsword, 
I want to read uh, some of my, uh, an excerpt of, of my translation here. So that the feather fencers rush in, fresh here, you feather fencers, let me tell you, a book printer has just started. He set books and reads them. However, St. Mark's was a fencer. He has by all means found nothing. He thought it was only a poem. He absolutely does not think anything of it that St. Mark was our patron. For Marcus the Evangelist describes God's word without any deceit and is preferred by the strong lions because his teaching reaches so far. But I will do it for you now. I will give you a correct answer to the question. Several emperors in number, they all have gifted the brothers of St. Mark with shield and helm, which we still have by night's deed we got from them and named us Mark's brothers, the pious ones. He gave us also the great power to lead St. Mark's with beautiful splendor and also well reported by the lions that no feather fencer can attain. But yet they boast of their griffin. They are much too bold in this for a Duke of Mecklenburg has no more than one who has held his own in fencing. Gave them the griffin which he shall lead and no other fencer fencers now, no other feather fencers now have nothing more than the griffin's small honor because they have been mistaken here they are not privileged. And it goes on. Um, he doesn't tell much more about the Federfester there, but there's some poignant words there that I'm trying to uh, translate, retrans- retranslate, understand. Um, I, want it, I'm, I want it to fit a theory, but I want to also let the words take, take me somewhere else. Um, what exactly did Rosner mean when he said about the Duke in Mecklenburg, he had only one who has held his own in fencing. You know, what does that, what does that mean? Um, and again, why the mention of the book printer? How does that coincide with many mentions of the, um, by the Marx Bruder of the Federfester being dandy writers? Um, I believe Rosner was already very, very, very well aware in 1589 how this new upstart group of fencers had formed. Him being a master of the longsword um, of the Marksbruder, he would have known word would have spread. Hey, there's this new upstart group They're They're not like us. They've got nothing. Uh, we need to whoop them good ineffectual. We need to watch them. They just have one little small honor. Uh, they have nothing more than the Griffin's small honor, uh, meaning the Kleinod. That's another word for that Kleinod. It's a small honor, a small privilege. Um, and they're mistaken. They're not privileged, he says. It's interesting, and that's Rosner, 1589. Um, other poems, 1579, um, a lot of smack talking about the Federfester, but nothing as concise as that, nothing as poignant as what Rosner then shared there. And again, there's, there's some interesting uh, um, digging to be done on that uh, with regard to book printers being privileged in 1570, who they were, uh, who was this uh, Greifenfels. So I want to conclude now. um, What have we learned? (laughs) Not much more, I guess, than what we previously knew, just a lot more speculation here about Greifenfels, Mecklenburg, um, etc. But this, uh, the interesting history of Prague, I think I want you to take that away, take away uh, from here that this, during the turn of the 17th century, Prague really seems to have set the stage for a um, legitimate and honorable fencing guild to take the four. 
they they had to, somebody had to rein in control of that wild wild west like atmosphere with regards to fencing and the violence on the streets of Prague. Um, this early formation of this group was probably brought about by the threat of war. The emperor and others they sought to control the fencing or the war arts. Uh, they they probably saw the impending war coming and which eventually started, not surprisingly, in Prague. Um, this group had already existed as a contrary group to the Marxbrüder, and the first mention of them was in 1574 at the description of a Fechtschulen in Germany. And then other mentions of them uh, I found in Bohemia in 1575. They held a Fechtschule at a castle south of Prague named Jindrichov Hradec. I probably murdered that Czech word. Jindrichov Hradec. It was also uh, at that same place, that same castle, at a town council building there in 1581. These Federfester were clearly in the eastern part of the empire um, as well at the same time in in the western part in what we would, what we would consider Germany. Um, the word used uh, was Federfester. Uh, throughout the remainder of the 16th century, the word Federfester was seen, and eventually then they would become known as the Freifester von der Feder von Greifenfels. So no real association with Greifenfels until the early 17th century, almost post um, their imperial privileges. So it could be surmised that the um, association with Greifenfels was due to a patron or a patronage by any number of nobles w within that house, Greifenfels, uh, but I, I have got a sneaky suspicion it was probably due to the Stransky von Greifenfels family. Um, still looking for that connection, um, other than the modern-day Stransky relative using the Federfester coat of arms in his uh, genealogy page for Christian Stransky von, von Greifenfels. Uh, I hope to hear more back from him. I'll share that, obviously, uh, with you all, keep you in the loop when I do. Uh, so why then did the Duke of Mecklenburg give some group of fencers this small privilege, this Kleinod or recognition? Who were they? Still searching, still researching, and re-researching uh, for that data. I believe they were separate groups operating at the same time throughout the empire. And once the imperial privileges uh, took hold in Prague, then it was on. The formation was solidified throughout the empire. Uh, word probably traveled fast. Much the same as the earlier Marxbrüder, they had several groups active, uh, Unser Liebenfrau and the Brotherhood of St. Mark, potentially Brotherhood of, of St. George, uh, before they all would coalesce into one fencing guild. So there's very similar practice taking place here with the Federfester. And, uh, well, I'll certainly keep you all informed here when and if I learn more pertinent details about this subject. Um, I think we're getting closer to understanding the beginnings of this fencing guild. Now, as to the final date, or ending of the guild, I have discovered, um, or I've found, it's been discovered, I just happened to stumble upon it. I discovered some written evidence from uh, Czech historians. They all seem to quote the same source. Um, these were town council decrees uh, that indicate the Federfester applied to the Emperor Charles VI for a renewal of their charters. And then there's some correspondence back and forth from his court, Charles VI, and the royal governors of Prague, the royal governor of Prague, uh, that fencing and teaching of fencing was now strictly forbidden based on the murder of a particularly famous law student. 
so there's several documents going back and forth between the emperor's court and the, the governorship there that seem to shut down the guild and abolish their treasury, and that no mention of new masters in that guild appear after 1730. So maybe the other geographic locations uh, throughout the empire persisted past 1730, but but as for Prague, uh, their former headquarters, it was all over for them. Uh, 1730. We know 1747 was a one of the last written descriptions of effectual between the Federfester and the Mark Spruder. Um, again, I'm not so sure. That was in that was near Breslau in front of then then emperor um i'm not so sure we've got to find we've got to dig a little bit more deeper i want i'd love to see those original documents i think i've discovered them um and i'm just gotta just gotta get better at translating czech history because as i said in the beginning of this podcast i've only ever researched the history in the german uh the original german language of of these things and it's and it's there's a, quite a bit of data but I'm finding there is just a treasure trove in the Czech language, the Bohemian language. And so I've got to get better at translating that and dig deeper and learn my keywords and, uh, and, and get down some rabbit holes there. And so, yeah, I think I'm going to wrap this up. I really appreciate you all tuning in. I hope, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this and learned a bit. Um, again, I will, I promise I'll keep you all in the loop. I think there's folks out there who really care about this and, um, I'll let you know how this shakes out. What, what happens here? Appreciate you tuning in as always. Thank you for your support. Uh, this has been your host, Kevin Maurer of rabbit hole research. Y'all take care out there. We'll see you. All right.